Does everybody have a prayer? We all need a prayer. Does everybody have the GBM prayer? Please join with me. O God of many names, remind us that you love all people, no matter how hard we try to deny that love in our thoughts, words, and deeds. Renew our hearts, our souls, and our bodies so that we may serve people more fully. Give us strength to stand with those who struggle, wisdom to see needs clearly, and courage to pursue justice. Grant us compassion so that we may open our arms, our minds, and our hearts to build community for all. Amen. Well, I didn't just want you to move forward and sit closer just for my own relief, but we make community by physical proximity to people. So if, if there was somebody sitting at a table way by themselves, they're not quite as much of the community as folks that are sitting a little closer in and around the tables. And so we are gathered here as a community that in some way, shape, or form has connections to Greater Birmingham Ministries. So we gotta sit like we're a community. Um, so take a moment, if there's somebody at your table you have not met yet, let's have a little holy chaos. I want you to turn and just tell them your name. Now hopefully you at least know one thing about the person sitting near to you, if you didn't know it before, that's their name. Names matter, and so let me tell you my name because I also abhor name tags and mine also flew off at some point. I just never put it back on because that was my reason not to have to wear a name tag. My name is Kelly Hudlow. Um, I am an Episcopal deacon serving here in the Diocese of Alabama. I work for our bishop's office, not very far from here downtown. Um, I think it's also in these spaces to name some other things that I think are important. I was born in Alabama I've lived my whole life in Alabama. I was born in Mobile, which means I will always be a Mobilian no matter how far I'm away from home. I lived in Tuscaloosa. I now lived up here in Birmingham. I've served churches in Tuscaloosa and Fayette and Jefferson County, including church, new churches, weird churches in Birmingham, coffee shop churches, um, a church in Fairfield. I am an Alabamian. Though I may not necessarily look or be what many people think of when they think about Alabamians. I am a cradle Episcopalian. I was baptized at two months old right after Hurricane Frederick. I had no idea what was going on, but I've been brought up in the church my whole life. I'm a Gen Xer, right? So I'm that weird generation that's always forgotten between boomers and millennials, but we're here and we matter, right? I'm also a member of the LGBTQ plus community and was very thankful to two and a half years ago get married in the state of Alabama with members of my church community present. And my parents who happened to vote for Donald Trump still there because community and relationship matters. I tell you that because I think it matters that we realize who we are and that the story of who we are, are may not necessarily line up with what the world thinks that we are. It is certainly an honor to be asked by Carolyn Foster to come and close out this day. 
If you've learned one lesson between me and Rabbi Miller, you should be very wary when you get an email or a phone call from Carolyn Foster, because um, she may be asking you to take on big tasks like conclude our day, sum up what we talked about, and send us out into the world in, I don't know, 25 minutes or less. But here I am, and I'm glad to do it, and I'm particularly glad to be part of the sending out because I think for a lot of us, like when we show up to worship in our respective communities, the time that we spend together in that community is important. It's important to feed ourselves spiritually, to worship and acknowledge the God that draws us together. But it's also important that we are sent out the door to do the things that we talk about. And so today we've spent time hearing about GBM's history and we've spent time learning about things, but the real moment and the import of why we're here is gonna come when I tell you to get out the door, right? And to go do what we've talked about here. It is certainly an exciting time, I think, for GBM. 50 years is nothing to sneeze about, right? That's a big thing to make it to 50 years, particularly to make it at 50 years of doing transformative work, not just in the Birmingham community, but around the state of Alabama. Alabama doesn't necessarily like change and it likes to sort of snuff out those people and things that bring and invite change and that GBM is here 50 years later, and is able to talk about what the next 50 years will be is a powerful thing. It's important to remember the work that GBM has done. 50 years of feeding people, clothing people, healing people, transforming people, finding housing, advocating for people that did not have voices, 50 years of work to make our communities not only more compassionate, but more just. And I must say that I think GBM is marking their 50 years in the right sort of way. They've had time to have a party, right? We've had a party. We've celebrated and rested into the joyful fact that the organization is here and that it's continuing on into the future. But it's also created this time to reflect on where we've been but to also talk about where we might still have to go. And that to me is a real strength of an organization that in celebration, it can still look back and still look forward to what the next thing might be. It seems meet and right, if you know Episcopalians, we like to talk about things being meet and right, so to do. And so here we are, 50 years into the ministry and work of Greater, Greater Birmingham Ministries, and we find ourselves living in strange and unsettling times. If I had to guess, probably anybody that's been connected with Greater Birmingham Ministry has been saying we've been living in strange and unsettling times for probably the whole 50 years. Now the rest of the country, or at least a big part of us, has woken up to that fact as well. We indeed live in strange and unsettling times. So much of what so many of us has sort of taken as the agreed upon shared understandings of who we are has been tossed into the air. 
We live in a world that when we don't like the facts, we just say fake news, where politicians feel entitled to rewrite the beautiful poetry that's on the Statue of Liberty, and where justice certainly is not blind, she probably never was, but we know now more than ever that justice sees whether you're poor or a person of color or wealthy or white. It's strange and unsettling times to be alive. We debate whether or not climate change science is real, while the waters rise and the temperatures get hotter, while storms increase in magnitude, we continue in the myth that surely we didn't contribute to this and certainly there's nothing we can do about it. Strange and unsettling times when a small number of us keep getting richer and turn around and convince the rest of us that perhaps find ourselves in the middle class that the problem isn't those getting richer, it is the immigrants, the poor person, the person of color, or anyone that just wants to make a place to live, to have a job, to work, food to eat, and their children to be safe. That is who we should be afraid of. Strange and unsettling times when we care more about a right to own an assault-style rifle or a high-capacity magazine than we care about our right for our children to be safe and to even live. When we are more outraged when the body count is high, but we can live comfortably as our people, especially young men of color, die daily to gun violence and police violence in our neighborhoods and in our communities. We are in strange and unsettling times, but we are also in a time of hope. And we are in a time of hope because the great thing about when the foundations give way is that that is the time that we can undo the myths that have perpetuated systems of injustice we can stop the false narrative of rugged individualism and manifest destiny in this country, and we can replace it with narratives defined by freedom and justice, not small freedom or small justice that white male slave owners wrote into our Constitution, but big freedom and big justice that calls for everyone to live a life in the pursuit of happiness and safety in this country. When the foundations give way, we get a chance to unerase people, right? We've made whole groups of people disappear from our nation's story. Indigenous people, people of color, women, immigrants, we have wiped them away. And when the foundations crumble, we get to bring them back into our stories so that we can tell the old stories, but tell them better. We can tell new stories that are truthful and that don't prop up systems of power, but instead create systems of justice and compassion. When the foundations give way, it means we have a chance to reclaim the moral imagination of our community, our state, and our country. We can refocus things, refocus our imagination from one that is centered on greed and violence to one that is based on equity and peace. I love this, this phrase, moral imagination, 
preachers like to grab onto stuff like this, right? And there's this, this description of it that I think particularly fits GBM. It's this, moral imagination means the capacity to imagine something rooted in the challenges of the real world, yet capable of giving birth to that which does not yet exist. Moral imagination isn't fanciful dreams, isn't something that can never happen. It means really seeing what's going on now and holding that together with what has not yet become. When I look at GBM's history, when I hear Rabbi Miller and I hear Scott talk about where it, GBM has been, I see GBM as a leader in our community of our moral imagination. Greater Birmingham Ministries and the people that work there and the faith organizations that make up that community are able to look at the real world challenges around us to address them in concrete ways while still pointing us towards that Birmingham or that Alabama or that United States that we dream could be. GBM has spent 50 years reminding faith leaders that our prophetic voices that we are sometimes so proud to point to, those prophetic words that we may speak in churches and synagogues and mosques require equally prophetic action in our communities. In these strange and unsettling times, we need GBM and organizations like it more than ever. We need 50 more years of commitment to bringing together seemingly disparate groups into coalitions of justice. We need 50 more years of GBM as the greenhouse for justice and community organizations. 50 more years of GBM challenging and shaping our moral imagination in Birmingham. I think it is interesting and quite brave to title this, the little subtitle of this conference today is, Where Do We Go From Here? And in strange and unsettling times, that's a pretty good question of where do we go from here? How do we continue to grow and develop our moral imagination? How do we keep from being overwhelmed by a world that just doesn't make a lot of sense? In these strange and unsettling times, how can we invite new voices, new hearts, new minds, new hands into the work of reclaiming the moral imagination of our community? In these strange and unsettling times, how does one generation pass the story and the work of moral imagination to the next? Now, the preacher in me, when I responded to Carolyn's email, the first thing I did was I picked up my Bible and began sort of thumbing through because um, good preachers hopefully don't preach on their own. They preach based rooted in their tradition. And so I started looking through the pages. Of course, the Bible's got a lot of good material. It's got some hard material too, but it's a little hard to sort of zero in on what might help us for this conversation today. And I lingered through the prophets and, and came upon the prophet Joel. 
you don't know Joel, that's fine. Joel is one of the minor prophets, called minor not because he's important, but because his book is kind of short. Um, and he doesn't necessarily get a lot of air time when folks are looking at the prophets to talk about. He's not, you know, a Jeremiah or a Amos or an Isaiah, right? He's just Joel, sort of sounds like a simple name, right? But I'm a bit nerdy, and so I'm sort of drawn to small things that maybe take a bit more work to get into. And so I started reading the book of Joel, which begins sort of plainly, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, son of Pethiel. No date, no king, no nothing to really orientate us to the time where we're in, just Joel's name, who his father was, and then we are often running into his text story is basically this. A terrible plague of locusts had come to Judah and devastated it, right? And then there was a drought, and that didn't help anything. And then Joel calls for the priest and all the people to take on a season of lamentation and repentance so that the Lord's favor would come to them. But then Joel, this is part of the reason why he's not so popular, says the Lord's favor is not necessarily going to be great to start off with. There's going to be a period of judgment, and it's going to be a bit uncomfortable, not just for our enemies, but for ourselves. But just keep waiting for it, because when the Lord's work is complete, justice will be there, we will be made right, um, and there will be a land of peace and, and free-flowing wine and water. Not the best, most compelling story. It starts with locust, and that's a little hard to get rooted in. It seems a bit small and narrow. It seems like it's talking to a very particular time and place in the life of Israel. But I think Joel has some stuff for us to hear today, particularly in this moment of, of looking forward. And I think there are some similarities between sort of the unsettling times that the prophet Joel was dealing with and the times that we have going on here. And it starts with the locust, interestingly enough. The locust that were there in the land of Judah had ravaged everything. Joel tells us that the first swarm ate everything, and if anything was left, the slow, fat locust that came behind them ate that. And if there was anything left after that, the young locust that hatched ate that. And somehow there's even more locusts to make sure whatever might be left had been eaten. And then on top of that, there's the drought. Everything in the land had been affected by this plague and this drought. It just wasn't humans that were suffering. The animals had nothing to eat or drink. All of the creation of the land of Judah had been harmed by this plague that had come upon it. Nothing was untouched. But Joel begins and says, but the end is in sight, and this is what you need to do. Hear this, you elders. Listen, all who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? If so, tell it to your children and let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. Joel's point, at the moment when it seems that relief might be close, is that what has happened should not be forgotten. 
When I look around at our community and at our country, while I don't see a swarm of locusts, I do see something that is almost as insidious that has not left a single thing untouched. And that's when we look and realize that we are completely struck by systemic racism and fear. Everything, everything is affected by this plague that is in our community, our economy, our systems of justice, our environment, our politics. Nothing is left untouched by this. But as a community that sits on this side of the civil rights movement, we might say, but we see a glimpse of what could be and what might come and an end to this. And this is the point when it is most crucial that the generation that has eyewitness testimony about what has happened doesn't keep it to themselves, but make sure that their children know what has happened and that they know the truth and that their children tell their children what has happened. We have got to stop cleaning up and simplifying the complexity of the civil rights movement and the violent response that occurred to it and the systems of oppression that continue from it. We can't quote Dr. King in 1963 and not look to Dr. King in 1967 when he says what we need is a revolution. We need to move into an era where we are called upon to raise certain basic questions about the whole of society. You don't get to have the dream if you're not willing to deal with the consequences and the work to make it happen. And I think GBM is important in this role of memory keeping and storytelling because you were there. You were there and began the work of raising basic questions about the whole society that Dr. King pointed us to towards the end of his life. Second thing I think we learned from Joel is that God calls us to change but the change that God calls us to is not of superficial things, but is of radical to the root change. It's not just changing our outsides, it's changing our hearts. At least for Episcopalians, or if you're in a Christian tradition that also uses the lectionary and observes the liturgical seasons, the one place that Joel might start to sound familiar is if you think about the readings that we do on Ash Wednesday, which begin the Christian season of Lent, which is a season of fasting and repentance to prepare for the celebration of Easter. And there on that day, we hear Joel say, rend your heart not your garments. God doesn't want you to just make a big show about how sorry you are. God wants you to be sorry and to change what is in your heart to be in line with what God calls you to do. GBM for 50 years has challenged not only our communities, but also our faith leaders to not just give lip service to justice and compassion. That it's not just enough to bring a gift to be given out at Christmas, though you should absolutely do that, and that drive is going on, I think, right now. Um, it's not just enough to bring the gift to be given at Christmas, but you also have to do the work of ending the system that perpetuates the poverty that makes people show up at GBM to get the gift in the first place. It's not just enough to show up for the photo op 
but not go back to your communities of faith to fix the sickness that is in your heart and theirs. We got a heart problem, and Joel remembers that that reminds us that that's what we have to change in the work that we're given. The work, third thing Joel gives us, the work that we're called to do should be done by the powerful and the privileged alongside those that have been made powerless and unprivileged. So also should be work that's done by both young and old. While Joel is maybe not the most original prophet, most scholars point out that he sort of riffs and remixes other prophets in different parts of the Hebrew tradition, he does make that tradition speak and give language to the experience that his generation is doing. Joel probably is more like us today, relying on our long, deeply held faith traditions and sources of holy text to try to get, find language there to make sense of the world that we have in front of us. Joel uses his history and tradition to speak justice and compassion to Judah, which is ravaged by plague and, and oppressed from outside nations. But Joel gives us a vision that no other prophet does. So he may not be original on some things, but he is original on this, that when the day of the Lord comes, when, when the end really is in sight, when we're on the threshold of justice and restoration, Joel says that God will pour out his spirit on all people, that your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, and your young men will see visions, and even my servants, both men and women, will receive the spirit in those days. Joel's vision of when the end is in sight is that the whole community, not just the priest, not just the holy people, not just the folks that had firsthand to remember when the first locust showed up, but the whole people would receive the Spirit of God so that they would all become prophets so that they would all call the community to repentance, so that they would all rend their hearts and not their garments to bring transformation to their communities. That it's not just looking to one person in a funny shirt or wearing the right robes to do it, that all of us, young or old, slave or free, powerful or powerless, are called into the work of transforming the community when the day of the Lord comes. So where do we go from here? What does this sort of second-ranked, not very often read prophet, what does 50 years of ministry here in this place tell us about where we're going? In some sense, I think the answer is pretty simple. Where we're called to go is where we have always gone. We are called to go to those on the margins we're called to go to those that are forgotten, those that go unseen, those that are hungry and hurting, and we are called to go there and to say and to show them that we see you, we hear you, 
We're going to offer comfort and support, but then we're going to invite you to join in the work that we are doing, to lend their voice, their experience, their dreams, so that the our voice, the community of presence that is here becomes louder and that our dreams become bigger. We're called to go to the places of worship and to invite and at times challenge them to dig deep into the roots of their faith to find common cause with us, common cause for justice and restoration. Where do we go from here to where we've already been? We go to places of power and we shine the light of truth. We point out shady deals and backroom politics. We educate, equip, and empower people to vote in ways that make sense and not make other people money. But we also must be prepared to go to new places, to hear and amplify new voices. If you've spent any time in the South, you've certainly heard the adage that it's always darkest before the dawn, and I believe that we are standing at a point where we might see the glimpse of that light of the new day that we have been working 50 years for, that new day of justice and equity in our communities, and it is at this moment that the status quo tries to yell louder that the racist economic and political systems try just a bit harder to hold off the light, that the forces of hatred and violence and fear rise up to stop the new day from coming. But if you've ever had to stay up all night doing anything, nothing stops the sun from coming up. It just keeps on rising. And so that we know that the spirit of truth and compassion and justice have been let loose in this place have been poured out and that we are all prophets and called to join together in this work. Where do we go from here? We go to prophecy and we go to dream bigger dreams and we grow and go to have visions and to invite more people to expand those dreams and visions to things that we can't even imagine. Where we go from here is to each new set of hands that may be offered to us so that the load gets lighter and with each new voice, the light gets brighter and our dream grows and grows and grows. Joel maybe wasn't the best prophet, but he does end up with the right ending. He ends by saying that when God's work has been accomplished in this place of famine and locust and drought, that the mountains will drip with new wine, the hills will flow with milk, all the ravines of Judah will run with water and a fountain will flow out of the Lord's house and that all will be made right. We're not quite there, but the dream and the beauty of GBM is that we have the moral imagination that we can imagine what it would be to get there. 
and that's where we keep going for the next 50 years, and the 50 years after that, and after that, if that's what it takes, is we keep moving forward. Now, my last job that I was asked to do was to send you out, and I'm assuming that there's no announcements or anything that come after me. Um, so I would invite you, if you are able to stand, um, because this is right, we learned this from the civil rights movement, like at some point our prayers gotta equal our feet moving. And so since I'm gonna send you out the door with this, stand if you, if you are able. And I will send you out with this. My friends, we are called to live without fear. Our creator has made us holy, has always protected us, and loves us as a mother. As we go from this place, may the wisdom of God guide us. May the love of God transform us. And may the spirit of God strengthen us so that we may offer our hearts and hands to the work of justice and compassion in this world. Amen. Amen.